Hello and welcome to Loving God Through Loving Neighbor, a special six-part class from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thank you for joining us. Let's listen in. Welcome back. It is colder than last week, but there is less snow on the road. So, <laughs> take what we can get. Um, yeah, thank you for coming again. Uh, the first three, first two days are really building on top of one another. So last time we asked the question, why bother engaging with other religious traditions? And today we're going to ask, okay, now that we've thought through why bother with it, and we've come out the other side and said, okay, we should bother with it. How do we do that? So today is, how should we engage with other religious traditions? So I'll go through a number of questions that have popped up throughout Christian tradition. I'll examine them through the particularities of our Reformed tradition uh, and kind of come give you some of the conclusions that I personally have come to. These are more offer-ups. I'm offering this up more for your own thoughts. These are not prescriptions. You don't have to do them. You, don't, you can reject all of this. This is just thoughts I have. Take it, pick through it, rearrange it how you'd like, um, or take it wholesale or reject it wholesale. It's all fine with me. So, but let me pray and then we'll get started. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord in heaven, I thank you for the wonder and extent of your grace. I thank you that it precedes the church and that you have called us to go into the world to discover how you are bringing all of creation back to yourself in Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. May our time this evening be but a peace in that long journey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, uh, review. Is that too small? Okay. Okay, good. Okay. Um, okay. So let's review from last class. So three reasons why we should engage other religious traditions. So reason number one, recognizing our context. So we discussed last time how a lot of contemporary Christianity, particularly in the United States, is still beholden to a number of modernist par paradigms. These ideas of certainty in knowledge claims. The idea that science gives us objective knowledge, whereas faith is something that is reserved more for subjective and personal uh, you know, uh, belief. And that the world, and that the, there are universal norms that we can discover and that we can then input throughout the world. But a world in that we live in is postmodern. And so it doesn't have this idea of clear objective truths, that everything is interpreted, that knowledge is contextualized, that morality is also contextualized. And so the question we ask is how do we move from a modernist understanding of our Christian faith to a postmodernist approach because that's the context in which we live. And if we want to share the gospel, we have to talk to people who think in this type of way. And especially what does this mean with regards to other religious traditions that also have truth claims, that also believe that they are on the right path, that also believe that they are sincerely and truly worshiping God. So how do we shift 
our understanding of our context. Second, recounting scripture, going back and looking through the numerous ways that God has surprised characters in scripture or readers of how God has worked outside our expected contexts. So whether it's Melchizedek, <clears throat> priest of El Elyon, coming out of nowhere to bless Abraham, or Jesus praising the Samaritan, who is the religious outsider to the Jewish community, that every, numerous times in scripture, God is working outside the boundaries of the covenant narrative community. And that the church is called to see God working outside and to extend out into that space. And the third one is reconsidering our understanding of God's grace. That God's grace is not something that just is reserved for the concept of personal salvation. But God's grace also contains the concepts of general revelation. Everything that is created and is not just created by God, but also dynamically and constantly sustained by God. The concept of common grace. That God extends grace both, both externally to all people in the world. We all receive the rains that fall from the heavens, but we all also feel the desire to love, the desire for community and compassion. And finally, the grace of the image of God. That these three together create a dynamic form of grace that all people experience throughout the world, no matter whether they're Christians or not. But from the Christian narrative in which we belong, sin still corrupts that grace. And so yes, grace does exist, but there's still a need for the gospel narrative because sin has corrupted that. So how do we go about then discussing the gospel narrative in light of the things we talked about last class? <clears throat> and so this is a driving question I want us to have today. How should we think about or engage with, and I, I want to make sure I'm trying to be very careful with language that just focuses on concepts. So I don't want to just say, how do we think about other religions? Because we don't sit in a room just thinking about other religions. We actually engage with real people from other religious traditions. And so I want to be careful of language that just says thought. And I want to include thought and practice together. So how do we think with or engage with the persistence and flourishing of other religious traditions in light of the particularity of the gospel? In other words, if the gospel is the truth that the world needs. Why is it the case that there are all these other religious traditions that don't just exist but flourish and civilizations that also flourish with these traditions that aren't bent to the destruction of all things that the gospel has? My Muslim friends, my Jewish friends, my Hindu friends are not bent on my destruction. They live a very flourishing life and believe sincerely that they are pursuing God and truth and goodness and sincerity. And so just saying that, oh, they're misaligned or going off, that doesn't really help us Christians understand and engage with the real people that we live with. Rather, they become concepts. So how do we engage with real people who are truly flourishing in other religious traditions? <clears throat> so I want to talk about Two main ways Christians have thought about this. So the first one is a category called the theology of religions. And the second one is a category called comparative theology. Now you may, if you 
read between the lines as I go through this, you may see the theology of religions does lend itself a little bit more to the modernist conceptions we talked about last class, and comparative theology lends itself more to the postmodernist. So just to kind of like advertise the ending, this is where we're going to end up. So the theology of religions. <clears throat> it's driven by one question. Who is saved? In other words, it's a soteriological question. So from this question, who is saved, we, we, there, is a, there are three paradigms, what we call the threefold paradigms. Exclusivism, and again, these paradigms are kind of caricatures, and of course there are degrees between each one of these three points. But if you can kind of put three points in the ground, these are the three points. Exclusivism, no salvation outside of Christianity or the church. Some, something like that. Inclusivism, non-Christians can be saved, but Christianity is still the zenith of religions, and e even though non-Christians may be saved, their salvation is still through the work of Jesus Christ. They just don't know it. And then pluralism is, you know, all religious traditions are valid vehicles of salvation. That's kind of the three main points. So, we're right, everyone's wrong. We're right, you're wrong, but you might still be okay. <laughs> Everybody's right. Just kind of <laughs> taking that level down. <clears throat> so exclusivism. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm, this slide has the most because it's easy to make a straw man argument from this position. In other words, it's easy to set this up as, oh, clearly they're just so wrong because they're just saying, only I'm right and, and no, everyone else is wrong. And, that's a straw man argument. In other words, it's setting up this figure that's not complicated and easy to knock down. So, like most things in politics these days, they're all straw man arguments. So, exclusivism looks like this. It starts with the fall. The fall results in original sin. So, what's original sin? This is from the exclusivist perspective. What's original sin? It's disbelief in the truth. And what happens when we disbelieve, disbelieve the truth, we substitute something else for that truth, which is idolatry. We substitute the truth for something that's false. So we have false faith. And that false faith is a denial of God who is triune, the triune God. Not just God, but the triune God. So what was the, what was the fall? False faith in the triune God because humans have substituted an idol for the truth. So what does this mean for non-Christian religions? It means all non-Christian religions are idolatrous because from this perspective, they are a result of the fall. Why are they idolatrous? Well, apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit and apart from Scripture, humans can have no true knowledge of God. If humans can have no true knowledge of God and non-Christians are not following Scriptures, therefore they do not have true knowledge of God. Because the Bible is the ultimate authority. You can't just, from the exclusivist position, you can't put the Bible with the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata and the, the, you know, some Puranas and the Quran and the Talmud and say, these all say the same thing. And arguably, people from each tradition would say they don't say the same thing. And so an exclusivist would say, they say they don't say the same thing. We say they don't say the same thing. We're in agreement they don't say the same thing. We think our thing is right. 
And therefore, to not recognize the truth that God has delivered to the world is a results in a judgment of divine wrath. Because there is a radical difference between Christians and other religions. Because Christianity, from this position, Christianity is the religion that has the truth. Because Christianity is the religion that has the Bible. Because the Bible is the sole authority from God. And without that, all humans are lost. So, Christianity is uniquely different. Which I mentioned, the particularity of the gospel is uniquely different. From that unique difference... There is one right way and everything else is wrong. So this is the scandal of particularity. The uniqueness of the claim of Jesus in the Gospels, in the Christian tradition, to have something different. And the only hope for peace in the world is the expansion of the Gospel through missions. So that is an exclusivist perspective. What I would think is a more nuanced exclusivist perspective. Now, inclusivism... I'm going to try to walk through the same steps. The fall also results in original sin. But the original sin is not an idolatrous switch of truth. It's a corruption of the image of God. So I think about it like this. Imagine you have a flashlight. and You're trying to shine it towards an object. So before the fall, that light you're shining reaches the object. What the fall does is it brings a mirror between you and the object you intend to go to. And that light, though it shines out of you, doesn't reach the goal. It refracts another direction. So, the image of God is still trying to get to God, but sin is now taking that desire and refracting it somewhere else. So, you still love, but maybe you love with consumption. Or maybe you love selfishly. Or maybe you love not in a way that God desires you to love. It's refracting it. <clears throat> Inclusivism would still say the Christ event and the Bible are unique in human history. But this uniqueness is not limited to those who profess to be Christians. Rather, it's for those who are in Jesus Christ. Who is that? Who knows? It might be Christians. they it's probably Christians, but it might be some non-Christians. The term a uh, very famous Catholic theologian Karl Rahner uses is anonymous Christian. In other words, somebody who is in Christ but doesn't know it. Why are they in Christ? Because they're saved. So anonymous Christian. <clears throat> now, this is not to say non-Christian religions are valid means of salvation on their own. So being... From this position, being a Buddhist on their own would not be sufficient for salvation. This position would say, you're a Buddhist, it's fine. But if you're saved, it's because of the work of Jesus Christ, which you may not know fully at this point in time. So it's not the religion that saves them, it's Jesus that saves them. But Christianity is the more unique, more fully revealed religion amongst other religions. So even though God is more fully present in one, it doesn't deny his presence in others. Pluralism. It's like the parable of the elephant and the blind man. Right. 
three, four blind men come into a room. There's an elephant in there. One blind man holds the tail and says, oh, this must be some type of, you know, broom or brush or something because you got that you know, fuzzy thing in the end. And one has a trunk. said, no, it's like a snake. And one has a leg. I said, no, it's like a tree trunk. Now we know it's an elephant, but from each of their perspective, they only have a piece of the whole. Now, pluralist position would say each religion is a piece of the whole. What is the whole? God. What are each religions? A piece of the wholeness, which is God. This is not necessarily universalism. This doesn't mean everyone's saved. It just means every religion is a valid path to salvation. So this position can still hold to the idea that people can condemn themselves. They could still be selfish and consumeristic and wicked to other people and still incur damnation. But just as saying that all religions lead to the same end, which is God. That's the pluralist position. You can find all three of these positions within the Christian tradition writ large. Okay, so these are kind of the, the three based on the question, essentially who's in and who's out, who's saved and who's not. That's the, the driving question of this position. <clears throat> so let's assess it. Now, <clears throat> I want to look at this through that postmodern Christian perspective we talked about. And I want to use a term called plausibility structure. This comes from a, a political thinker, sociologist, Peter Berger, his book, uh, Sacred Canopy. And he says, plausibility structures are patterns of belief and practices accepted within a given society which determine beliefs are plausible and which are not. In other words, we all operate with plausibility structures. If I came to you and said, there is a flying spaghetti monster behind Saturn, who say that's ridiculous. Unless you're a Pastafarian. Pastafarianism, which started as a joke, now has, I think in Idaho and Arizona, you could actually have on your license, Pastafarian. They wear colanders upside down in their heads. Um, and they believe there's a flying spaghetti monster behind, I think it's either Saturn or Jupiter could Wikipedia this. Some planet. There's a flying spaghetti monster behind the planet. Now, for our plausibility structure, that doesn't make any sense. But for another plausibility structure, it may make perfect sense. Here's another example. From the Buddhist perspective, Jesus dying on the cross is nonsensical. A, there's no God. There's no divine God being. B, the goal of the Buddhist tradition is to stop suffering. So how can suffering solve suffering? That makes no sense. So from the Buddhist plausibility structure, the gospel seems nonsensical. But we operate in a plausibility structure where the gospel makes lots of sense. We have ideas of the fall of humanity and the wickedness of the world, the need for redemption, the need for the work of Jesus Christ and the church and all these things that make the words that we say make sense to each other. And so all these knowledge claims depend on the plausibility structures in which we live. Again, this is going back to that postmodernist discussion, discussion. It really is just being aware of how we interact with the world. It being aware of ourselves so that we can better communicate with other people. And this is particularly true not only for ourselves, but with communities as a whole. Whether it's national identities or religious traditions. 
So for example, my wife, when she was in Spain, told me the story of a, a person she knew. She was an Amer- the person she knew was an American. She married a Spaniard. She'd come home and she was eating lunch and she was like standing, eating her lunch really, really fast. Her husband said, what are you doing? Said, I need to eat because I need to go back to work. He said, no, you sit down, take 30 minutes, an hour. Yeah, you're chuckling, right? That sounds, that's, in America, that's nonsense. A, you're home eating lunch. B, you're taking an hour at home to eat lunch? And then you're going to go back? What? That's, that's crazy. Why aren't you working? That's not, but to the Spaniard, it was nonsense to not do that. It was nonsense to rush. And that's just, that's just a, a cultural plausibility structure. How much more are religious plausibility structures operating? And so for us Christians, I think it's important to realize that the Bible provides our plausibility structures. Right? When we engage with the world, or at least it should, you should say that. The Bible should. <laughs> it may not, for, but it should. It's supposed to <clears throat> provide us with a plausibility structure within a pluralistic world, a world that's diverse. Now, again, being Presbyterians, well, being in a Presbyterian church, you're going to get Reformed doctrine. So, here you go. From a Reformed position, the doctrine of Scripture is that the Bible is, as I said, it is our plausibility structure that informs all other traditions. We have other traditions. We have other things that inform and engage with us and you know, feed into our lives. The Bible is supposed to be the primary plausibility structure to make, safe, make sense of faith and practice. Again, Faith and practice. This does not mean the Bible is your supreme plausibility structure for all things related to geology. Or all things related to nuclear physics. From the Reformed doctrine, the Bible is the authority for all things relating to faith and practice. That's its authority. That's where it claims to be the primary plausibility structure. And should not be usurped for other things. <clears throat> now, as Reformed people, we also have the doctrine of election. Now, the doctrine of election has many meanings. It is not simply God's up there going, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. You didn't say bless you, you're out. That's not how it works. One of the ways in which the Reformed tradition interprets the doctrine of election is an election to be a follower of Jesus. God elects the people who will be his covenant people. So looking at the Old Testament, God chose Israel to be his covenant people. Were they always great? No, frequently they were horrible. But God elected that people. So from a Reformed position, we would look at Scripture and say, what does it mean to, for God to elect? It means God elects people to be a community, to be a responsible community for Scripture from one tradition to the next, to communicate it and live it out in the world. So we are elected to a job. God has chosen us for a job. What's that job? Witnessing to the gospel and working out the kingdom in the world. 
That's the job. Through the work that God is doing, through the Holy Spirit, we're not left alone. <clears throat> I think I mentioned this actually to Dave last, uh, this past Sunday. How many of you are in the second service? Okay. Let me know if he said this. Because I mentioned it after the first one. He said, oh, I want to see in the second one. So I'm going to actually see if he said it. Uh, <laughs> I, so he was talking about, he was talking about kind of the postponement of, um, was it postponement of, not desire, what's the word I'm looking for? Anyways, things being postponed. And I mentioned to him, Leslie Newbegin, from which I'm getting a lot of these ideas. And he, Leslie Newbegin says, we tend to laud and celebrate the person who's there at the moment of conversion. Somebody else. We're like, ah, oh, you brought someone to Jesus Christ. Yeah. But Newbegin says, in fact, we shouldn't do that. We should celebrate every single person that has ever met with that person their entire lives that was a witness to the gospel. Because that person was just important as the person that was at the end. So it's about being faithful. You may be there when God's spirit changes that heart. You may not be there. But it's about being faithful. Did Dave mention that? No. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> okay. I'll just say he did. There you go. Because he'll see this later. <laughs> okay. So, <clears throat> how do we as Reformed people engage with other religions? So, we need to think about our context. We are Christians who are trying to communicate with non-Christians and in communicating with non-Christians, we must be able to understand non-Christian plausibility structures. You cannot try to engage with... Here's another example. I have a really good friend from Spain. We are talking about churro y chocolate. I was like, ah, oh, I went to this place at churro y chocolate. He's like, ah, oh, that's great. You know, when did you have it? I was like, for dinner. He goes, no. It's only for breakfast. I'm like, Juan, I had it for breakfast. It's like, Juan, it's only, only for breakfast. I don't know what they're doing. It's only for breakfast. Um, in his mind, it's only for breakfast. His plausibility structure has a world where you only have churros y chocolate for breakfast, and that's it. Anything else is heresy. Or it's like, uh, I like to watch these videos, and it's like these... <laughs> So these two Italian guys watching people like do terrible things to Italian food. So like someone will stand there and like take pasta and break it in half. And they're just like shocked and horrified about what's going on. Because in their plausibility structure, you never break the pasta in half. You always stir it into the pot, even if it doesn't fit into the pot. And so how do I engage? Like if I'm inviting someone who's Italian to my house, I will not do that. I will adopt their plausibility structure to be hospitable. So how do we do that when trying to communicate the gospel with other people? How do we try to understand somebody else's plausibility structure in order to better communicate, whether it's verbally, whether it's through action? How do we engage through plausibility structures? Now, there is a problem, which is sin. <laughs> the problem we face is sin in the world. Yes, we have God's grace, right? Those multiple forms of grace in the world. But sin is still corrosive. Sin is still trying to pull us away from God. So it doesn't mean that everybody's plausibility structure is blessed by the divine all the way through. It's going to have corrupt aspects. It's going to have grace aspects. And it is the job of Christians informed through Scripture and the Holy Spirit to try to suss those things out, not just in other traditions, but also in our own tradition. 
And so the question I want to ask is not, are you saved? And there are a couple of reasons why I don't think this is the question we should ask. So first, it's an abstraction of the soul. And it's individualistic. So we live in a very individualistic society. Many societies in the world are not individualistic. And to say, are you saved, really just says, what happens when you're dead? I think I mentioned this last time. Did I mention this last time? Okay. So. It can, it can come off, rub off on people as <clears throat> unloving, which is the ethical oversight. But the last part is it misses the wholeness of the gospel. The gospel's message is not that you're okay when you die. The gospel message is that Jesus, through whom everything was made, for whom everything that is made exists, and to whom everything that is made will return, that Jesus has come to the world to redeem everything. Not just people, but societies and structures and nature and all things. This is why Paul says that nature is groaning in the birth pangs of the new creation. Creation itself feels the draw of the new creation. And so it is not just for souls that the gospel was given to the world, what came into the world, it was for all of creation. And so the job of the Christian is the wholeness of the gospel, not the individualness of the gospel. <clears throat> and so this is long, but I'm going to break it down. So don't worry. And I embolden the parts I think are important. So this is from Leslie Newbegin. Say Leslie Newbegin to Dave and he'll be super excited. Um, he was a missionary to India for a long period of time, uh, Anglican minister, uh, I think end of his career was a president of World Council of Churches as well. Um, I've written a number of books, but uh, I really like his book uh, called The Gospel in the Pluralist Society. And this is from uh, the end of one of the chapters in the middle. So this is the position which I have outlined. So this is Newbegin's position. He says, he is an exclusivist in the sense that he affirms the unique truth of the revelation in Jesus Christ. So in that sense, he's exclusive, the particularity of the gospel. But he's not exclusivist in the sense of denying the possibility of salvation to non-Christians. He is inclusivist in the sense that he refuses to limit the saving grace of God to members of the Christian church. In other words, he's taking very seriously Jesus' parable that says, those who think they're invited to the wedding feast may not be invited to the wedding feast. Those who say, we have our card punch, we are Christians, we got the name, you may not be saved. And those people who you may think, oh, those people surely cannot be Christians, God may have other plans. So he's trying to be sensitive to the aspect of scripture that I pointed out last time, which was looking at how God works outside our expectations in scripture. So he's trying to leave room for God to work outside his expectations. But he rejects the inclusivism, which regards non-Christian religions as vehicles of salvation. In other words, for Newbegin, Christianity is unique amongst other religions. Why? It is the only tradition whose plausibility structure is the Bible. It's the only one. And because of that, it is unique and has the unique charge of being a caretaker of that gospel to the world. Other religions do not have the charge of being the caretaker of God's gospel to the world. Christianity does. 
So in that sense, other religious traditions from Newbegin's perspective are not valid vehicles. <clears throat> Where was I? He's pluralist in the sense of acknowledging the gracious work of God in the lives of all human beings. This would be those three different types of grace we talked about. General revelation, image of God, common grace. But he rejects pluralism, which denies the uniqueness, the uniqueness and decisiveness of what God did in Jesus Christ. In other words, he is not a pluralist in the sense that he rejects always up the mountain. Not always are equally valid for him. And so I find this to be a nice landing point for a reformed postmodernist Christian approach to other religions. It tries to take into account the particularity of the gospel. It tries to take into account the reality of diversity and different claims and pluralistic structure, uh, plausibility structures in the world. And it tries to take into account God working outside our expectations, but maintain the particularity of the gospel. <clears throat> so this then brings me, I told you, advertising the end, to comparative theology. So comparative theology builds off of the theology of religions. So it likes the fact that the theology of religions gives you a starting point to evaluate other traditions. It's like, that's, that's good. And you start within your own tradition. So that's a starting point. But it requires a little bit more. Because the theology of religions is just taking a position within your tradition, and that's it. It doesn't actually go out and learn about another tradition. So in that sense, you need the discipline of the comparative study of religions. In other words, going out and learning about another religion. Now, comparative theology comes from the academy. So it's going to have this academic language. It doesn't need to be. Learning about another religion can be as simple as having dinner with a friend who is of another religion. That's learning about other religions. Having coffee with your coworker who's of another religion. That's learning about other religions. So it doesn't have to be, today I'm going to sit down and study the Bhagavad Gita. It, I mean, you can, but you don't need to do that to understand Hinduism. In fact, you don't even need to have read the Bhagavad Gita to be a Hindu. You don't even need to believe in the Bhagavad Gita to be a Hindu. You actually don't even need to believe in God to be a Hindu. So just taking one thing doesn't mean you understand Hindus. So go meet the people. Go learn from these people because they're very diverse. Comparative theology instead is faith, the Christian faith, seeking to understand God, being rooted in one tradition, but from that tradition, venturing into another tradition to learn more about particular questions that you might have and then take that back to your original tradition to reformulate your original tradition. I have, a fan, I have a helpful chart here. So, it's like this. I have a question. I've thought about it through my tradition. It's kind of helpful. I wonder what that tradition says. I now enter into the plausibility structure of this position. I learned about my question. How has this tradition thought about my question? Interesting. Go back to my tradition, bring that back, and now I have a slightly tweaked plausibility structure. You've changed a few things. 
because I've gained insights from the other tradition. And in doing so, I have learned how to do a communication back and forth. I personally have communicated my thoughts in one tradition and another tradition. And if you, you can do that, then you can verbally communicate it and communicate in actions. So being curious about how another tradition thinks about prayer, how another tradition thinks about God, and being willing to truly learn it from that tradition's perspective is A, comparative theology, B, bridging plausibility structures, and C, doing that type of reformed postmodernist perspective that I was talking about. The modernists would say, yeah, there's nothing over there because we're right. I have certainty. I'm certain. I know. What's, what's the point? The postmodernist would say, I think I know, but that could be interesting. Maybe there's something different. Now, there might not be something new you learn. Right? Not every time you engage with a new idea, you come away going, yeah, I agree with that. In fact, disagreement is another way of learning. Because you've learned, oh, I really believe something different. Huh, that never struck me before. But why I believe that? Oh, that didn't align with my plausibility structure. And then you've realized, oh, that's part of my belief system. Or that was really important to me. I never had to think about that before. But now that I do, I realize that's really important to me. So here's an example. I tend to find myself less Christocentric. What I mean by that is... A lot of times, American Christianity, particularly because it's influenced by evangelicalism, is very Christocentric. A lot of language of Jesus. Nothing overtly wrong about that. But it tends to negate the Holy Spirit. Now, Pentecostalism, since the early, mid-1900s, has started to help that. But we tend to overlook the Holy Spirit. And we believe in the triune God. So spirit should be just as important as Christ is just as important as the Father. But we just think of Jesus, 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 Jesus. To the neglect of the Holy Spirit. So my engagement with Muslims, just focusing on Jesus, kind of comes, rubs them the wrong way. And so I thought, okay, how, how can I rethink my communication of the gospel? And I thought, okay, what does... How have Christians thought about the Holy Spirit? And that kind of pushed me into Pentecostalism, into learning from Pentecostals. And that really helped me expand a whole new area of the Christian tradition that I previously may not have been interested in. Why? Because my engagement with Muslims kind of pushed me to think more about the Holy Spirit, and I'm very thankful for it. Because now I really do appreciate Pentecostalism. I used to think that Pentecostalism was that weird thing that those snake handlers do. But it's not. It's very robust. It has wonderful theology and wonderful ways of thinking about God and engaging the world and doing missions and doing amazing things in ways that I think we can learn from. But it's my engagement with Muslims that kind of pushed me in that direction. <clears throat> so, how can we as Reformed people do this type of moving back and forth? What, is the, what are the warrants? What are the justifications? So first I want to look at the three graces we talked about. Right? Common grace, general revelation, and image of God. And from these three, we, we should see the inherent value of other religious persons and other religious traditions. Because what is a tradition but a collection of persons? 
right? There are no Muslims. There's no Islam without Muslims. If there are no Muslims, Islam would not exist. If there are no Hindus, Hindus, Hinduism would not exist. So it's individual people who we believe are created in the image of God, who engage with general revelation. But we also need to remember the corrosive nature of sin, which then takes us back to the need for the gospel. And so this then need of the gospel brings us to the question of what is salvation? But salvation is a larger term than individual souls. It is the salvation of all creation. So in that sense, we could say yes with the exclusivist. The truth is only in Jesus Christ. But like Newbegin, say yes with the inclusivist that there may be people who don't name themselves as Christians who are saved. And say yes to the pluralist that God's grace extends throughout the world. And so that then alleviates from us the responsibility of being the counters of who's saved. And then instead moving into a position of doing this type of comparative theology with other people as faithful witnesses to the gospel. And so this is a movement between two people, between two traditions. It does not have to be an academic study. It can be something that is done on an everyday basis. It could be just as easy as bringing somebody freshly baked bread to their door, taking care of somebody's pet when they're sick. Could, any, any engagement with someone of another religious tradition is an opportunity for learning, and learning will happen. And so keeping our minds and souls open to how God is already working before we get there, I think is the value in this kind of comparative theological enterprise. So, thank you for listening to me today. This has been the Loving God Through Loving Neighbor class from Knox Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our missions and ministry, visit us at knoxpres.org. That's K-N-O-X-P-R-E-S dot org. You can join us for worship in person or watch our live streams every Sunday morning. Thanks and see you next week.